This is the Registry Podcast. Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned into the Real Perspectives Podcast, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of real estate and talk to leaders who shape the industry on a daily basis. I'm your host, Vladimir Bosanets, and today we have an extraordinary guest joining us. He's a trailblazer in the industry, a visionary leader who has revolutionized the retail real estate industry, Chris McGuire, the co-founder and CEO of SRS Real Estate. With his exceptional entrepreneurial spirit and strategic mindset, Chris has taken SRS Real Estate from humble beginnings to remarkable heights. His passion for innovation and his commitment to excellence have earned him a reputation as a driving force behind some of the most successful retail real estate ventures. But Chris's journey goes far beyond business achievements. He is a true advocate for collaboration, empowering his team to think outside the box and challenge industry norms. Chris firmly believes in the power of relationships and has built a network of partners and clients who trust him to meet their needs across the evolving environment of the retail industry. Throughout this conversation, we'll dive into Chris's unique insights, exploring the strategies and principles that have fueled his success from his early days in the industry to the groundbreaking projects that continue to shape the retail real estate landscape, we'll uncover the lessons he's learned along the way and how you can apply them to your own journey. Get ready for an enlightening conversation that will leave you motivated and hungry for more. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Please join me in welcoming Chris McGuire. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well, thanks. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I'm in our corporate office in Dallas, Texas. Excellent. And I assume everybody's back into the office. Um, uh, have you guys had any kind of, uh, you know, back and forth with return to office and uh, any, anything, anything in particular that you've kind of learned through that whole, um, you know, happening over the last couple of years? And we learned a lot. Uh, we're in Texas, so I think we were probably in one of the better places uh, during the whole COVID uh, years, I guess it was. And we were we were back in the office relatively early here. And as we'll discuss, we're in a people business. And so for us, the social interaction and uh, the learning that goes on and, and the transfer of information from our young people to our more senior brokers is really important. And you lose that when you're not face to face and in the halls and at the coffee bar. So uh, there's definitely positives to the work from home, um, certainly with people that are commuting and families and things like that. But I think there's a balance there and uh, we're we're still learning um, as we kind of move forward and think about what that balance should be and uh, the different groups and and the companies and the different offices. And frankly, we've got 28 offices around the country and uh, all of them act a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I I am anxious to kind of hear from people what they're doing and how it's affecting the business. Obviously, it's it's one of these new trends, right? So I am um, always interested to see how, how things are moving along um well so chris thank you again for joining us um you know by way of you know introduction would you mind telling us a little bit about you know your background in the industry sort of how uh you know how the winding road of your career if you will got you to where you are today and uh you know how srs was started and um you know uh what the company does 
happy to do it. Um, I had a pretty windy road for two or three years, and it's been straight and narrow for the last 37 years. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just quickly on me, I grew up in Dallas, uh, went to school down in Austin, University of Texas, came back to Dallas in 1983 and got in the real estate business and was with a small retail boutique developer, and we were doing leasing and uh, building new small strip centers. And uh, and that was 1983, so it was the, the right in the middle of the whole savings and loan debacle that started around that time into the 84, 85 range. And uh, <clears throat> my company at the time got tied up in some uh, some some deals where the loans were uh, maturing, and the due to what what was going on in the banking world with the SNL crisis, the pressure got put on the owners of the company to really focus on their portfolio. And I was actually uh, working with three or four retailers at the time that I had met that were doing deals in shopping centers that we owned. And we built a good relationship together and they asked if I could help them uh, look for other locations. And at the time, there was no such thing as retail tenant rep. Uh, office tenant rep was just getting started, and and I'll speak to that in a moment. But retail tenant rep was non-existent, and so I I wanted to continue to do that to represent these tenants. The company that I was working for wanted me to focus on their portfolio, so I left and did a short stint at another local brokerage company here in Dallas, and then walked in one day and I had a handwritten message because that's how we took our messages yeah. back then. <laughs> Uh, from Roger Staubach. And uh, of course, growing up in Dallas, I knew Roger Staub- knew who Roger Staubach was, quarterback of the Cowboys, and knew he had a real estate company. But that was the extent of my knowledge. And I thought it was probably a practical joke, but called back. And sure enough, Roger was on the line. And, and Roger had formed the Staubach company back in 1977, after or about when he was retiring. And they focused on office tenant rep because they felt like the office tenant needed an advocate and, and it was r- relatively a new concept in the office world. There were a handful of companies around the country doing it, but right. um, they decided to do it here in Dallas and <clears throat> a few years into it, he decided he needed to get in the retail business um, and ended up looking for someone here in Dallas that could lead that business. And uh, at the ripe old age of 24, I was lucky enough to get chosen to build that business. So I moved over to Stavok in 1986 and started the retail division. And my, my mandate was to go build a national retail tenant rep business. So that's what we, uh, the path we started down uh, 37 years ago. And uh, it was interesting at the time because retailers um, are, are huge users of real estate, uh, unlike a law firm or an accounting firm that might do one new office lease every 10 years, the retailers do 10 new deals every year. And as we all know, that's how we grow. And the, the, the mid eighties to the mid nineties were a tremendous, uh, creative growth cycle for retailers. You had these new category killers that were coming in that, uh, you had Radio Shack and Consumer Electronics that was doing 2,000-foot stores, and all of a sudden you had Circuit City and Best Buy and Silo and some companies that are still here today and yeah. many that are not that were doing 25 and 30,000-foot boxes. So it was pretty prolific, and the big boxes, the Walmarts and 
Home Depots and Targets and Lowe's, those guys were all growing and developers were building these huge power centers all over the country. So it was a great time for us to get into the business. And uh, But we spent the first few years really educating retailers on this new tenant rep services where we would be their advocate rather than their adversary on the landlord side. And we started to get traction. Some of the larger uh, real estate brokerage companies started to pay attention to it and think about getting into the retail tenant rep business. And that was really the genesis. And, and we stayed true to our tenant rep only roots for the first six or seven years because we really wanted people to understand that we weren't playing around with this idea. We were committed to it. And so we did two things. We, we helped retailers find sites and we supported them with the research um, in order to find the best sites. And um, over the years, though, we had a lot of requests from these retailers to help them with other uh, needs that they had, whether it was on the disposition side, uh, whether it was on the capital market side, they didn't have the balance sheet to support their growth. They didn't have the development team and construction team internally to support their growth. So um, we got into a lot of different areas, providing a lot more services for those clients as we grew the business and went from one office in Dallas, Texas in 1986 to uh, today we've got 28 offices. But along the way, uh, we were Stavok, and, and our portion of the company that we built and ran was called Stavok Retail Services. And in 2008, um, we made the decision after uh, a bunch of discussions over the years to, to sell the Stavok company and ended up making a deal to sell it to JLL. Uh, JLL wanted to buy our retail division, and, and we just weren't ready to sell. JLL wasn't in the retail business. and. Um, at Stalock Retail Services, that's all we did. So we chose not to go along with the sale. And so in uh, August of 2008, we sold the Stalock company to JLL and Stalock Retail Services became SRS Real Estate Partners. Um, and that uh, that is where we've uh, really focused and, and that's what we've used as our brand for the last um 15 years, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you said the company now has 28 offices. Where are your most significant markets? Yeah, well, as you would expect, we're, we're in most of the main, most all the major markets. Um, our, our philosophy on growth is we want to cover the U.S. geographically. We've been doing business. We follow our retailers, so we're not a uh, East Coast, West Coast, sure. uh, Sunbelt focus like a, a lot of companies and a lot of certainly um, in certain sectors or sectors of our business you have specialty uh, whether it's people that focus on grocer or people focus on malls or lifestyle and for us we cut across all those different sectors and all the different geographies so we we have clients that are rolling out stores in new york and la and Dallas, and, and we also have clients that are going to smaller markets like Corpus Christi, Texas, and Des Moines, Iowa, and Amarillo, Texas. So our market knowledge uh, is wide and, and deep in most of the markets we're in. Strategically, uh, we're in all, all the major markets, and um, we'll continue to grow uh, and, and add offices where we either feel like we have a need to provide more service. A good example of that is earlier this year, we acquired a team in Portland, Oregon, and opened an office there to, to cover the Pacific Northwest for us, which yep. 
is a difficult area to get transactions done and you really have to have people on the ground. We've been there previously, but uh, we haven't had a team there for a number of years. We brought on a great team up there to cover that market. So I tell you today, I think we have great coverage across the country and, and all markets, but um, we're certainly open when we have, and recruiting for us has been, it, it has been and is very strong right now because you know we're unique. We're not the big public brokerage company and we're not the little boutique. There's really nobody like us that's in the middle yeah, that's yeah. highly focused on retail. Yeah. So retail um, went through a bit of a transition, obviously, when, when COVID hit. It was probably one of the sectors of the commercial real estate space that felt the impact of, of that pandemic pretty, pretty instantly. But it has rebounded um, quite well since then. Um, now, there is a distinction between suburban and urban retail, I think, which uh, still which still prevails. Um, I'm curious, sort of, you know, here we are talking, you know, midway through almost at the end of Q2 of, um, you know, 2023. How would you characterize the state of the industry? Yeah, so... Uh what I like to tell people when we talk about retail is, is retail is in a constant state of change. And, and I'm talking about before the internet was ever around. Um, if you go back and think of, think of the shopping centers in your local hometown where you grew up and think of the tenants that were in there, TGNY and Woolworths and, and people like that that are long gone, uh, yet the shopping centers in those markets that were in your hometown, um, and assuming you're in the, you know, the growth areas or the better areas of town, those things have remained full, but the names on the door are different. And that evolution was happening, has been happening for 100 years in retail or longer. Um, what, what, what's happened in the last 15 years is totally different. And you've had two things that have really driven that. One. Uh, was clearly the, the internet and the advent of online shopping. And, um, you know, that that was a dramatic change. And it, it was always interesting to me, Vlad, because you look at when I'd have this discussion, whether it was with retailers or owners or capital uh, markets people, and they talk about as, pe as the internet was coming online and people are worried, oh, it's going to replace bricks and mortar and you've got Amazon and I said, yeah, and you've got Apple, who's one of the biggest uh, companies out there and does all their business online, yet they now want to start opening retail stores. And, and they were one of the biggest driver of new um, physical stores yep. out there. And uh, so it, the dynamics uh, have changed dramatically, and, and it really is all about consumer preference. I mean, how does a consumer want to shop? How do they want to buy? Um, how do they want to go out and be entertained? What, what kind of environment do they want to be in? Not everybody, you know, we're, we're social animals and uh, we don't all want to just see that Amazon truck pull up to the door, drop off a bag, run out, grab it and come inside. We, we like to interact with people. And I think what's happened over that period from, you know, call it the, the you know, 2000, just after the GFC, when we really started to see the online proliferation and, you probably remember when Whole Foods bought Amazon and everybody said, okay, the grocery stores were the last uh, internet proof uh, retailer out there. And now they're going to go away because Amazon bought them. Right. Well, that right. has anything but has happened. And so I think the next major change that hit was COVID. And when COVID hit, 
those first 90 days and we were all locked up in our homes, uh, forced to, to order online um, and very little interaction outside of our house, um, everybody thought, wow, we can do everything online, everything. We don't need to go out. This is great. Well, you know what? It wasn't so great. It kind of sucked, actually. <laughs> People wanted and, to go out, right? <laughs> yeah, they were. They we all realized what we didn't have, and and so we missed that. And we've never, none of us had ever been through anything like that. I mean, I don't think I traveled for seventy-one or seventy-two days, which has never happened to me, even close to that in my career. And so I think what what that did was it made everybody realize that there is no way in heck we're going to do all of our shopping, buying, eating, uh, social interacting in our homes. We have to have places to go and do. And so uh, coming out of COVID, that's why you had this huge built up demand and spike in retail transactions. And all of a sudden, all of the last 15 years discussion of physical retail is gonna go away, the internet's gonna kill it, went down the drain and overnight, everybody realized that a bricks and mortar strategy is a critical piece of the e-com sure. circle. Yep. You have to have it. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great for all of us in the retail business because everybody finally realized what we already knew and that's that retail bricks and mortar is here to stay and how retailers use their stores um, in those bricks and mortar location is going to change um, a lot. But those physical locations are here to stay. Yeah, yeah. And and there's no doubt about that. I think every online sort of, you know, digitally native um, e-tailer, if you will, you know, companies like Warby Parker or, you know, Shinola, places like that eventually found that they needed to have a physical presence also. And I think that's that's become evident. And I think even with COVID, which really sort of rocked the industry, I think, and others as well. Um, again, showed the you know persistence and and need of the of the physical space. Um, what I'm trying to get to a little bit more is you know some of the trends um, that are you know as we are now coming out of this sort of post pandemic new cycle that we're entering, right? And you know things like you know, is like a closed mall doing less well than maybe an open air mall, for instance, right? Um, are certain sort of high street, you know, shopping areas uh, doing better than maybe, you know, concentrated, you know, areas, you know, th things like that. Like, are, are you noticing any sort of big trends like that? Or is it driven, you know, primarily by, you know, demographics? Um, what are what are some things that you're seeing? Yeah, uh, a lot of the what, what you touch on um, uh, is happening out there, and and I think the so so let's talk about urban versus suburban first. Um, uh, urban, true urban markets uh, that are vibrant that have you know in, in order to have a really vibrant urban market, you have to have a large residential population. Dallas, Texas is a great example of. Downtown Dallas, they've been trying for decades to uh, put retail, get retail. We've got to have a grocery store in downtown Dallas. And I've, I've watched it here from my seat for years. And uh, I've been skeptical because we don't have, we have other physical issues with our street grids and things like that. But we don't have enough residential down there to drive that 24-7 cycle that right. you have to have in retail, most retail these days. So... You can't survive as a restaurant or a retailer 
um, if you've got a nine to five workforce uh, that's that's your customers. Um, so the, the true urbans, the New York cities, the San Francisco's, LA, DC, those markets, um, they uh, have always been relatively strong because you didn't have, uh, you had plenty of office and you had pl daytime pop and you had plenty of residents that, that went home. Uh, and stayed in those districts and then were there on the weekends. And COVID disrupted that uh, from an office demand standpoint. And I was in DC a couple weeks ago and, and I was shocked at how quiet the district still is. And, you know, part of that is our federal government. They, they're not, people aren't back to work at our federal government. And right, right. the district is, is occupied, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a huge percentage by the government employees. So I think the urban markets, um, San Francisco, you're on the West Coast, I think. We've got an office in San Francisco. I've, I've been out there a lot. Uh, it's very, very tough in the true downtown office CBD, you know, up Market Street. But if you get out to the marina and other places in the Bay Area, it feels more normal. If you go to New York City now, it feels real normal, even though their office occupancy is still down significantly from where it was. There's enough people there. Uh, and there's a lot of young people there. Right. And so New York City feels pretty good. So I think the urban markets, um, the, the office, how that plays out is going to be really interesting, Vlad, because I I'm of the belief that a lot of these older office buildings that are B and C buildings, um, they're functionally obsolete. And, and I mean that not just from an office perspective, but from a residential or, or another use hotel. Uh, the, the way the mechanical, the plumbing, the floor heights, the exterior curtain walls, all of those things um, are not real conducive to a change in use. Having said that, the real estate's fantastic. So it comes down to a basis issue. You can knock that building down and build something new, residential with retail on the bottom, and uh, have a great project. But as it sits today, it's going to be a, uh, you know, a tough bargain to get people back into those buildings. Yeah. So yeah. some of these markets, I, that's going to be challenging. But I, I you know, I've, I'm old enough to have seen multiple cycles. And yeah, I'm in San Francisco and, and you're reading the articles about, well, this office building is going to trade for 10 cents on the dollar. This office building may trade for nothing. And you look out the window, and it's one of the most beautiful, iconic cities in the world. Right. <laughs> and I can promise you, it will come back. Right. They have other other issues out there. But, um, yeah, so I think the urban markets uh, still have a reason to exist. Uh, will They've been hit hard, and but they will come back, and, and they'll adapt and change. Um, suburban is where the big positive change has been. And, and I think it's been a long time coming, and it's interesting that, COVID is really what shifted uh, people from their offices, whether they were in their offices in the suburbs or in, in more urban areas, and then uh, coming back and working from home. I mean, for years, you know, I look at the, uh, as they started to really focus on the, the um, drunk driving rules around the country, and people would uh, finally learn that you don't shouldn't get in your car after you've been at a restaurant drinking for three hours um, and drive 10 miles. Um, I think these neighborhoods, why did people do that? Well, they didn't really have 
the amenities in their backyard and in their neighborhoods. And as the the demand has always been there in the suburbs, the, the population, the demographics, they're all there. But what did you have in the suburbs? You had a mall out there somewhere that people within a 15 mile radius would go to. And then you had really daily needs type grocery anchored centers with other daily needs type type retailers. You didn't have the centers that had the great restaurants and the experiential entertainment oriented uh, opportunities for people to go have dinner, hang out. Uh, you know, you might have a movie theater, but <clears throat> you just didn't have those opportunities. And so what's happened is I look at my neighborhood where I grew up here in Dallas and I've lived my whole life and we've got some of the best, we had no restaurants um, other than a few fast food chains 15 years ago. And now we've got some of the best restaurateurs in the city, yeah. uh, every one of these intersections because the people are there and they want to, you know, they want to have a good time and they want to be proximate to their homes. So I think the suburban um, expansion and uh, the, the, uh, I wouldn't call it a flight to the suburbs because a lot of people are already there. They're just staying there. And the retailers have recognized that that's where the opportunity is to grow. Yeah. And so therefore that's what's happening. That's where we're seeing kind of explosive growth. Although there's been no real new development, ground up development. Right, right. Um, and I imagine, uh, Chris, you attended the uh, ICSC in Las Vegas uh, last month. Um, what was the general mood there? And are there any takeaways from the conference that you find interesting that maybe, you know, things and don't necessarily, you know, get out into the media as much as maybe they should? Um, yeah, I think ICSC felt as normal as it's felt since 2019. Last couple of years have been off people uh lots of people didn't come and and COVID was still lingering to some extent that was all gone this year so it felt way better uh, i heard from our brokers uh, going into the convention that uh, many were concerned that their clients weren't coming uh, but i didn't really see that i saw great participation from the retailers uh, our booth was slammed packed full of people the the entire time uh, I, I think the, the general mood, you know, if you, if you break it into breakout capital markets for a second and talk about our tenant owner services side of the business, that's very active right now. And, uh, you know, our, our biggest concern and the retailer's biggest concern for the past few years has been construction costs and shortage of labor. Uh, those have been the two most impactful uh, dynamics in the marketplace. Uh, for the last year, interest rates have, have creeped right in there, and uh, the cost has is, is hurt some of our people. But for the most part, we haven't had any new supply, significant supply added to the market right. over almost the last 10 years. And so I, I think what you're going to see is there's been a lot of growth, population growth, housing growth in the U.S. over the last 10 years, and yet there hasn't been new shopping centers built. So retailers, and we work with a bunch of retailers. We represent 800 plus retailers and have relationships with many more. And we know what the, we're talking to those retailers about strategy well in advance of where, when you see it physically uh, at a new location or you read about it in the Wall Street Journal, we generally are working with them on that strategy. And what we're seeing is 
these growth areas uh, have not been tapped by new retailers because developers haven't gone out and built shopping centers. And so we're exploring with a number of our clients right now how to get into these markets with new new build um, uh, locations. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because there has been so much growth and their existing footprint can't handle uh, the, those markets and those consumers, just like we were talking about earlier, into the suburbs. They just don't want to necessarily drive 20 miles to go to the nearest Walmart when it sure. should be five miles away. Sure, um, so right. I think that, that piece of it is going to be uh, pretty active. The capital markets, um, you, you know what's going on there, Vlad, and, and we're no different here than most of the companies. Our capital markets business is off. We're not down as much as some of the uh, other competitors that we read about in the paper. But And that's primarily uh, due to interest rates and, and investors. What investors want is certainty, and whether rates are are nine percent or five percent, they want to know what they are and have confidence that they're going to be, you know, in that range, and they're not going to be bumping up uh, every fifty basis points every month or seventy-five basis points. So, I think the good news for the capital market side of our business is uh, it looks like we're at the end or near the end of, of the Fed tightening and. Uh, people can start having some certainty and do some planning uh, for the future based on some confidence that uh, we're going to be in a more steady interest rate environment. Yeah. Um, Chris, if I can shift gears a little bit here, um, you know, as a business leader um, myself, I'm always curious, you know, how, um, you know, companies evolve and, and how folks like you think about, you know, evolving your business as well. You've been obviously at the helm of this organization for, for a while. You've seen a few ups and downs, right? Um, some very challenging times too. I'm curious as we now kind of enter this new cycle, um, you know, what, what do you guys as a company need to do to adapt, to evolve? Um, what are some kind of high level things that you can share with us? Yeah, well, we're that's a constant um, topic that's on my mind, and we are we're in a service business here at SRS in the brokerage world. We don't have a product to sell; we have a service to sell. So, you know, my assets here at SRS, I come up on the elevator every day, go home every night, right. and I hope <laughs> they come up the elevator the next day. Um, and uh, in order to, 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 for that to happen, we have to do a great job at providing um, a service, services to those brokers and employees uh, where they feel like they're on a winning team. And, and as we think about the retail world, which is uh, we've, we've taken a lot of punches over the last 10, 15 years. And finally, we're, uh, we've got a little wind at our back right now. Um, you know, we're not the office market. Uh, maybe they're the new retail right now, and I feel terrible for my friends in that business that are going to struggle for uh, a few years, I think. But for us, um, my job is to set strategy and vision for this business, and hopefully our people will follow. And we've got to put a good uh, high level of service uh, on the playing field for them and their clients. So they do feel like they're at, in a place where they can win. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years going through these ups and downs is, you know, communication is key. And nobody really likes to talk about when 
your business is off or the market's kind of crappy. Um, we're all uh, optimists around here, so we like to talk about good things and positive things, but you got to share and communicate with your people through good times and bad times. And um, that empowers people. It makes them feel like they're part of the team. Uh, and they want to know, and they want to know if things aren't great, well, how can I help make them better? Um, and if you don't tell them that, then they don't know that. So uh, it was hard for me to do after the GFC, walking down the hall with a smile on my face when I didn't really know what was going to happen in the company. But I couldn't really uh, portray that image to, to the people out in our offices. And we had to take kind of a positive spin. And just w one more note on that, when COVID hit um, and we all went home, and we stayed home, I, I was really worried about the, uh, not only the, um, the spirit of, of our people, but, you know, the mental health side of it. Sure. And what, what happens when you get locked up at home and you're worried about your livelihood, you're a commission broker um, and, you know, your clients, everything's shut down. And so early on um, and during COVID, I said to the team, we have uh, about 38 or 40 market leaders, which are the people that lead our offices and our business lines around the country. And so I wasn't the most popular person in the world because I said, we're going to do a weekly market leader call and we're going to do it Friday at three. And I think everybody thought they'd be on the golf course Friday at three, <laughs> but uh, I, I did it for a reason. And the reason was I wanted these people to go into the weekend with as much information uh, real-time information uh, it, that as I could give them. And so I was, I was talking to all of our retail clients and people on the capital market side and the REITs and uh, private equity. And, and I would make as many calls as I could during the week just to get a pulse on what everybody was doing. And I would share that with our team uh, every Friday at three. And then we'd have a few of our other people uh, give updates. And, and I got more positive feedback on that. And we continued it for uh, almost two years. And uh, I, I definitely got poked a few times about the Friday at three, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And, and I do think that it helped people, the mental side of it. You know, it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. Right. Um, but you, you have to communicate and you have to have information. And that, that's what uh, that's what we did. Chris, as you look at the investments that your organization is making over the next, you know, three, five years or so, um, where are you guys putting a lot of focus on? As I mentioned previously, we think that there's a lot of opportunity in this current market. And whenever there's disruption in the market, um, we, we have over the years been able to take advantage of that, both in terms of growing our business with uh, people and, and new clients. And when there's disruption, you have some fallout in the business, uh, brokers that just can't survive and they move into a different industry. Uh, the retailers get shuffled a little bit. Uh, and for a company like ours, that's been around for a long time and survived multiple uh, market cycles. It, we, we look at that as an opportunity. So when you look at the headlines over the past six months and you see lots of the major companies slashing, cutting, you know, $300 million cut here, a thousand jobs sure. cut there. We've taken the opposite approach and we're actually investing in our business right now. We've made a huge push on our marketing team. We've added significant number of people there. Same with our research and technology. Uh, we want to provide the best support out there to our people. And the result of that is our recruiting is as strong as it's ever been. 
actually the best year we ever had recruiting was the COVID year. Um, everybody, lots of brokers woke up and said, uh, had some time to contemplate their future, I think, and said, where am I going to be for the next 10 years? Probably not where I am today. And we hired more brokers that year than we've ever hired. And, and we're right now we're on another wave of hiring. So we're actually out there um, you know, beating the drum and telling the, the market, both our clients and our internal people and our prospective recruits, that we are making an investment in them. Uh, we're here to provide the best service we can for their client. And while others may cut back, I remember at, at the big companies, retail is never going to be the driving force, no matter what they say. Um, yeah. th they get their revenues and their, their profits from other areas. Well, at SRS, uh, retail is our driving force. And, and I didn't touch on uh, one thing that is important, and that's industrial. Uh, we, we've never been in the industrial business historically because we really didn't see the need to be in the industrial business, although our retail clients might add a distribution center as they enter a new market. They didn't add five or 10 or 15. Well, all of a sudden, guess what? Um, the, the industrial piece is, is a critical part of a retailer strategy. And whether that's uh, the distribution or the warehousing or the fulfillment, um, it's, a, it's a critical piece of their real estate strategy. Right. And the more, Correct, yeah, right. the more I've heard from our clients, the more I said, golly, we got to get in the industrial business. So we actually uh, brought over a team here in Dallas um, a year and a half ago, guys that I've worked with uh, over at Staubach years ago. And we're, we're building an industrial business. We're in San Antonio. We've got two new markets we're about to announce. And it's a great add-on to um, our retail uh, our retail offering out there. And, and we've adapted, again, to what the market's asking for. And so I think that uh, that's another area where we're going to continue to grow and hopefully provide better solutions for our clients. One of the reasons that we started this podcast, Chris, was to, you know, try tap into the, you know, younger, you know, folks, sort of a younger demographic that's entering the industry. Um, I imagine you guys are probably focused on sort of ways and try to integrate them. And you touched upon this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation with sort of this physical um, in, in interaction. And here's a group that's, you know, very well versed with sort of digital interaction and not necessarily the, the in-person sort of, um, you know, way of communicating. Um, how has that challenged your organization and, and have the, you know, two groups learn from each other, you know, how to, how to be better? Great question. We, uh, I'm in the, uh, the, the group of the older generation, obviously, and we've, we've adapted. It drives me crazy when my peers, um, in my kind of age group say, Oh, I, I don't understand technology or I, I can't do that. I mean, you have to adapt. Um, we're not going to ever be what our kids are and what these kids coming out of school are in terms of technology and how they utilize the different platforms. But uh, technology is a part of our business. I, I don't think it's going to, I don't think AI is going to take over the, the retail brokerage world, but um, I, I do think it's, it's going to be a part of it as all technology is. And we have to do a good job of bridging that gap from how the younger people. So the, the flip of that would be the young people that say they don't need to get on the phone or they don't need to go see a client because they can do it all online. 
Well, we all know that's not how you build a relationship. And sure. in, in yeah. this business, the, you know, the, the advice I give to our young brokers are, number one, listen more than you talk. Number two, get around the best producers and leader in the company. And, and I can promise you those people will interact with you if you take the initiative to interact with them. Uh, you know, spend time in the office, be the first one in, the last one out. Again, people notice that. And <clears throat> if you do it uh, and you're willing to put in the hard work, you're going to get rewarded for it. And, you know, the other thing is we're in a relationship business. So as we were just discussing, the best way for you to network is not on social media, flipping around and texting people. It's get right. out and, <laughs> and go to the industry events, come into the office, network with the people here in the office go to as you're as you're going through life and you have kids and you're meeting new people whether it's at the soccer game or the charity auction you'd be amazed at how much business you can actually pick up and you know because we are in a relationship business people do business with people they like that that's just right. the, the right. fact so i think that that is the challenge that i worry about with the younger generations is just making sure they get out and socialize and, and have that interaction, know how to build a relationship, um, because this is a business where you have to be able to do that. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Chris, as we close our conversation here, I'd like to, you know, usually end it on kind of a personal note. And, um, you know, we touched a little bit about sort of the, you know, younger folks entering the industry, but any any advice that you would would give a younger crop of folks that are, you know, either interested in going to retail or retail brokerage um, and maybe, you know, a perspective on sort of maybe what, you know, you, you would even tell your younger self, uh, perhaps if you were if you were one of these folks trying to get into the industry today. Yeah, how much time do you have, Vlad? There's a lot of things I'd like to tell my younger <laughs> self. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's uh, it, it's interesting. I, I we we've been doing this a long time. We've hired a lot of people. We've let people go. People have quit. Uh, you know, they've gone to competitors, and we've kind of seen it all. And and I've we've hired a lot of young people, and and we love doing that. We love bringing them in here with no work experience and. Um, and kind of molding them into the way we do business. And, and we have people here that have never had another job that have been with this company for 15, 20, 25 years. Um, and so I think that the real estate business is a, on the brokerage side, it's an eat what you kill business. You, you wake up every morning and you're starting from zero and you've got to go find those new clients. And so it's got to be something, everybody's not cut out for that. Now, having said that, that's not the only role in these companies. We have research, we have marketing, we have technology, we have lots of support that we need to uh, surround those uh, high producing professionals with. But I think for a young person, um, it's, a, you get, you, it's a very, especially retail, it's a very creative business. You're dealing with entrepreneurs, you're dealing with lots of change, um, it's exciting. Uh, people people really like what they do when they come here because they do have the ability to work with different clients and different venues and different cities. And so for the young people, um, you know, coming to a company like ours, I, I always tell them, and I touched on it a moment ago, you know, find the best people in, in the office and try to, you know, align yourself with them, watch them, learn what they do, uh, listen to them. And 
if you do that, you're going to know fairly quickly whether this is a business for you or not. And, and where you might fit in this business, you might find out that you're really not a broker. You don't want to jump on the phone and make cold calls and you'd rather uh, be supporting a team. And, and there's roles for that, too. But, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great business. It's exciting. The sky's the limit. Um, people can make as much money as they uh, put into it, as the work they put into it. And, and you build those relationships and you're going to be rewarded. Wonderful. Uh, well, Chris, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Uh, stay well, and uh, I look forward to connecting with you soon again. Yeah, thanks, Vlad. Hope you feel better. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.